I am very excited about this series. Uh, and it's really not a series, it is a snippet of a series, because if we know anything about the Bible, we know that a good third of it is prophecy. And there's no way in three weeks I can uh, even, even give more than like two or three snapshots of what, what is coming in the end of days. So um, one of the things that the Lord has said for me to be sure to do at the beginning of each session, because we don't know who comes each week, and we also don't know what we don't know. And we don't know what we have uh, come to perceive as truth that might not be. And so it's important that um, the Holy Spirit be our teacher when it comes to prophecy, just like it's important in any other aspect of our walk with him. So the first thing I want to pray over us this morning is that we will be a teachable people. Like I said already, we don't know what we don't know, but on top of that, sometimes the notions that we have um, are limiting us in our walk with him now. They're limiting our victory in him right now. And they certainly have the ability to evoke um, um, limitations and lots of negative things relating to the curse in our lives in the future, particularly as it relates to prophecy. So, if you are saying to yourself, Father, I have a teachable uh, spirit today. In your heart, you're saying that to him. I want to be teachable. I want revelation understanding. I want to understand this mystery in a way maybe I have never known before. Then you can agree with me in prayer. So, Father, as we gather together uh, as your kids, united in the blood of Jesus, we are here to learn about what is yet to come. Thank you for your word. There's so much in there. And we will read it into uh, eternity and still not totally comprehend the depths of who you are. So I pray, Father, for um, us today, as we sit here in this little bit of time, Um, to be able to get a grasp, even a slight grasp, on what the future holds. I thank you, Lord, that it's a good word for your kids. It is good. And uh, for us who maybe have have some fear and and, uh, insecurity about what's coming, I pray for for your ministry, Holy Spirit, to uh, do a work. We need to be teachable. We need to be open to um, maybe uh, be corrected and uh, get more of you, more of your word, more understanding, more revelation knowledge. And so I decree that over us as a people this morning. We are coming up higher in the things of you this very day as they pertain to the end times. We thank you for your help in this. In Jesus' name, amen. So first thing I wanted to do was draw a little bit of a timeline here. This is not an exhaustive timeline, but it is um, a little bit of help. I did this a little while ago, too. I wanted to do in red, though, the cross. So these aren't fat markers, so I'm hoping that this is going to show up enough so you can see in the back row there. But anyway, so if this were a timeline... And we've discussed this already. The Bible says in 
in Second uh, Peter and in Psalm 90 that the Lord counts a thousand years as a day and a day is a thousand years. Okay? So we see if this were the beginning of when Adam and Eve were on the planet, okay, and these, each of these little markers here is a thousand years. The first thousand years, well, actually it's not even. It's the first 2,000 years. Um, the first two days, did I do this right? One, two, three, four, five, six, eh. Okay, sorry, folks. There's another one here. We'll go this way. Okay, so the first 2,000 years we call the days of chaos. Does anyone know why we call them the days of chaos? Okay, the scripture says that um, every man did according to what he felt was right in his own eyes. That's when we had the judges and all of that kind of thing. God calls those from Judges uh, 20, he calls them the, the days of chaos. And then after that, so I need to move Jesus here. Sorry, I did this wrong. So after this, we have another segment of 2,000 years. Okay, and these are called the days of the... The... The what? The law. This is the Mosaic law period. Okay? After that, we get Jesus. Hallelujah. He shows up does way too much for us to even get our heads around. Okay? And that begins, when he shows up, that begins something. This day here, okay, and this day, those days are known as the age or the days of grace. Grace. We are right about here in the days of grace. And we can tell that that is for sure an accurate timeline because of what the word tells us. Um, another name for the, age, the days of grace uh, is the church age. Okay, It's also called the new creation age. Who calls us born-again believers a new creation? How, where do we come up with that name? Paul, he calls us a new creation. We are a, we are a part of, or we are a, I don't want to use the word creation, we're a species of mankind that never existed before the cross. Never. Okay, there was no such thing as a born-again spirit living in a human being until the church age began. And when did it begin? Pentecost. Pentecost. Does anybody know when it ends? The church age ends at the rapture. So the church age is a finite period of time. The church, you and I as individuals, are a finite group of people. Okay, we have to we have to get that in our heads at the very beginning of this, okay? The people who get saved in the tribulation saints, okay, for example, later on uh, in the midst of all that yucky stuff, they're not the church, okay? We need to understand the definition 
of the church is those who were who came in at Pentecost and the last person that leaves with the rapture. That is the church. One day, a little while ago, I stood up here and I said, do you realize, if you look at all of this, do you realize this little sliver right here is where we are? This little sliver is who we are. Do you realize how incredibly privileged God says it is for you and I to live in this time, to see the end of these events coming to fruition? Paul says that the generations before us wished that they could be where we are today. We are extremely privileged. But I think in light of our daily lives, in light of what's going on here and there, we just totally lose sight of that. It's really something else. And in eternity, okay, there will be people that come up to you and come up to me and say, what was that like? How, in the, how, did, you, how did you sleep at night knowing that you were one of them? Like, we just, we have no concept of what, who we really are and what that, you know, the significance of where we are in light of the church age. Okay, so those are things I need to point out first. Um, Then, okay, so we've got the Old Testament, we've got the church age, and then if we were to do it like this, let's take this timeline now and change it a little bit. Okay, let's do this first. Here after this comes the tribulation, which is a very short seven-year snippet of time, okay? And then comes after that the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand-year literal millennial reign where he is here in the earth. There really is a temple in Jerusalem. There really is headquarters for the world set up there. That's where his office is going to be one day for a thousand years. After that, just for the sake of understanding here, after that, that's why I'm sorry I did this so crazy, but here we are. Let's call this the millennium over here. And I don't really know how much we're going to get to really study all of this because really what I want to do is I want to give a proper uh, expanse of this, uh, what this timeline looks like. I want to talk about some of the things that have caused fear in believers. And I want to dispel some of the greatest misinterpretations of Scripture. That's what I really want to do over these three weeks. So I'm really hoping that I can get it all in. Um, So after the millennium, what happens? What's the really big thing that happens? Right. There's Then we go into the eternal state. Okay, the new heavens and the new earth come, and it's all roses after that. But here, and I'll just do it in green for a a change, right here after this millennium, this thousand-year reign, we know that uh, that rotten liar is going to get let out of hell for a last run at things, gets wiped out immediately. But this is what, it's not white, but... This is what we call the great white throne judgment. That's when that happens. And that's the end of that. And we go into the really, I mean, this is, this is going to be fun. This is going to keep us awake. <laughs> Not this, this. <laughs> 
So, off the top, any questions on the way I've laid that out? Has anyone got a question as to who is where and what is when? Just from the timeline. As clear as mud? Go ahead. Yes. Yeah, so what Gord is saying here is that the Grace Age, the devil wasn't anticipating that. <laughs> he figured when he snuffed out Jesus, that was going to be it. He'd done away with all of this, uh, you know, uh, getting in his way of being cu- becoming king of the world, okay? He figured that's what he was going to be able to do, and of course it didn't work out that way. And of course, when we got born again by the Spirit, now all of a sudden, God, Jesus has given us the same kind of power to heal the sick, raise the dead, and cast out the demons. Now he's, you know, he's really hooped as far as he's concerned. You want to know why you're hated so much? You want to know why the Jew is hated so much? Because both groups of people represent God in the earth. The devil has always been after the Son of God. He didn't know who the Son of God would be, which is why all the way back, the very first you know, family in the earth, he's already trying to start, you know, he's, he's killing who he thinks has the potential to be the Messiah. The devil's not omniscient. He doesn't know who Messiah is. He didn't know who Messiah was. So he had to spend, you know, every time he saw someone that kind of looked like that could fit the profile, he did them in. If I can't, if I can't deal with, uh, you know, if he's, if he's going to be a Jew, I've got to get rid of the Jews. Right? Anyway, I don't want to get off track. So that's kind of what the timeline looks like. If we look at uh, the Revelation, okay, um, well, we won't. We're not going to do that. We'll stay on, on this. So why study prophecy? Why study it? Why study any book in the Bible, really? Um, ultimately, the better you know your word, though, uh, the better it's, it's going to go for you in the earth. The better you know the Bible, the more you practice the Bible, the more the supernatural power of God can manifest in your life. Uh, it's supernatural. It's the only word on the planet that is. So if you're in the word, you're fellowshipping with Jesus. Is he not the word? Right? So the better you know prophecy as well, the more you will see in this life and the more you will understand what is yet to be. And the greater the blessing of peace will be yours in your daily life. So um, this is one of the things that I know for me as a, as a kid, like I got saved from a tract on a bus. I was literally scared into my salvation. I read a tract that talked about the judgment and uh, how horrid it was going to be. And it said something to the effect of, um, if it's not too late, if this hasn't happened yet, and it's, you, you, there's still time, you can be saved. And I don't know if that is... So I was literally scared into my salvation. I was looking for fire insurance. That's all I knew at the time, really. But from that, the Lord was able to show me he's a good, good father. And he took me from being an orphan to being a daughter, princess, ruler of the Most High, with the Most High. So he'll take you any way he can get you. He wants you. He wants to love on you. He wants to make you 
his son or daughter. He wants to rescue you from the darkest darkness in your life, whatever it might be. But I think maybe because of prophecy being saved through this very scary tract, um, maybe that's when the Lord kind of put this hunger and this interest in prophecy into my life. There are a lot of people who have no, no clue or care, and, and I look at them and I think, don't you want to know what's going to happen in the next, you know? I mean, come on, you're 50, you're probably going to be here. Don't you want to know? And some people really don't, and that's okay, except that it has become a real danger to our effectiveness in the earth. And I want to talk about that a little bit today. So there are many misconceptions about the end times, and many people have been messed up, really messed up, uh, by not applying their God-given, God's given tools to us to understand it. And it turns people off of studying it as well. And that's not God's will. If a third of the Bible is prophecy, I think he probably wants us to know it too. You know, Peter said that a day was like a thousand years and a thousand years was as a day. And in the New Testament church who he was speaking to, they knew what that meant. They totally knew what that meant. And it's a reference all the way back into the Old Testament And in Hosea 5, you know, it talks about the fact that um, God prophesies through Hosea and says that um, at the end of two days, Israel will get back on track with God. Those people knew and understood so much more of the New Testament because it had great referencing into the Old Testament. And in, so in Hosea 5, 14 and 15, and in 6, 1 and 2, it says that he's going to revive Israel. And on the third day, he will raise up Israel, and they shall live in his sight. Even in the Old Testament, the unregenerate Jews knew that there was this period of time where they would be forsaken, okay, and we'll get to that, and then there would be a time when they were revived as a people. If you could take transparencies and do layer upon layer upon layer to see how all these things fit together, you would be stunned and amazed. Our God is fascinatingly intricate and detailed. It's, it just makes you love him more when you see how much attention he pays to those kinds of things. So, what is eschatology? Eschatology. It is the study of end-time events. In Amos 3.7, the Bible says that God reveals first to his prophets that which is to come. He tells us the end from the beginning. That is an evidence that it's God. Nobody can make this stuff up. It's him. He did this. And there are many passages and books in the Bible that are prophetic, Daniel, Zechariah, Ezekiel, Titus, Joel, Amos, Jeremiah, James, Romans, the first and second Thessalonians, Hosea, Corinthians. My goodness, even if it's not a whole book, it'll just be a snippet in the middle of somewhere. Genesis 3.15 is first prophetic word ever written. Devil, you think you won? I'm going to crush your head. And the worst you're going to be able to do to me is bite my foot. First prophecy. 
So the Revelation, we're going to spend um, a bit of time there today. It was written around 95 AD by John, uh, one of the disciples, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who also wrote the book of John, the Gospel of John. And it came to him all in one sitting. He got the whole thing in one vision from, well, from God through an angel, okay? Which is very different from Daniel, which was uh, a book that was written over multiple years. Uh, So end times prophecy for us is meant to be understanding. It's meant to bring peace and confidence in God as a loving and patient father for his church, and it also reveals his heart for the lost. It's a heads up for the Jew. The book of Revelation is a heads up for the Jew and for the unsaved. They can escape the inevitable if they choose. And for us, it's to be an encouragement to us, an encouragement to persevere, to live in his ways, um, and to, be, to really live aware of the brevity of life, the brevity. This is, this is a vapor of an existence. It really is. And so then we're to be ever mindful and proactive regarding the lost, We are not in the millennium, as some teach. This is not the millennium. Prophecy brings much confusion and fear to some people because they're not using Bible discernment to understand it. Most confusion relates to not discerning who a passage is addressed to. So this this is something I'll say that you need for everything you read from the Bible, not just prophecy. But there are three groups of people identified in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. They are the Jews, the Gentiles of the world, and the, and the church. Everything is addressed to either three or one or whatever of these people groups. So it's the world, which is the unsaved, the Jew, okay, and the church, which is also called the ecclesia in Greek, meaning the... The called out ones. That alone ought to tell us something about what to expect. The other main reason for difficulty, especially in the book of Revelation, is that about half of it refers to the Old Testament. So most born-again believers are pretty biblically illiterate today. They don't know their Old Testament. In fact, there's even churches... Uh, groups of churches, if you want to call them that, who teach that the Old Testament is obsolete now and and there's no value in it for us. Well, that's just not true. If you want to understand the New Testament, if you want to understand especially the prophetic books, you need to know the Old Testament. So the people who read the Revelation prophecy in the early years after John, they had a lot of comprehension about this because they knew their Old Testament. Um... They might not be able to envision a robot, okay, or a volcano or a computer. They couldn't envision those things, but they could, to the fullness of the scope of what they had to work with from the Old Testament, they knew the important things. They knew the important elements of the Revelation because they knew the Old Testament. So when we read the Old Testament, we will understand the Revelation more completely and other prophetic books as well. So we're able then to connect the dots. So we must know who passages are written to. And for us now in 2019, if there's anyone who's ever lived on the planet 
who should have the greatest level of comprehension, it's you and me. Because we know, here we are right here, we know what robots are. We know what scanners are. We know what, um, uh, what do they call it, bioidentical technology is. We know that stuff. Back here, 95 years in here, when John got this, he just said, I saw what looked like, I saw what sounded like, I saw what da-da-da. Okay? If anyone should be able to connect the dots and figure some of these things out now, it should be us. So, the revelation uh, often gets equated with the word apocalypse. Okay? The world has given a definition to the, that word, apocalypse, that is not biblical at all. Does anybody here remember reading or watching the movie The Apocalypse Now? Anyone see that movie way back in the 70s? Okay, that was a scary movie for me. Had nothing to do with Jesus. Had nothing to do with prophecy. It was a war movie, right? It was, it was an awful movie. And the world has taken that word apocalypse and turned it into meaning something awful. But all you need to do is open up your Bible and you see that the book apocal- or the word apocalypse means revelation. Why, how do we do that, right? How do we do that? Revelation is a revealing. The book of Revelation, it's not revelations. There's not multiple revelations. It's one revelation. What is it? It's the revelation of Jesus. What he is going to be doing at the end of the age. Chapter 1 Verses 5 to 8 state who Jesus is, his past work, and then in verse 8 it speaks about his sovereignty. Well, we know his past work. We celebrated his past work this morning. The bread, the wine, thank you, Jesus. That's the past. We know his future work from reading this, what he's going to be doing, judging the unbelievers, coming on the clouds, the millennial reign, all of those things. And at that time, vindication and justice finally come. They finally come to the earth. And the world, everyone, finally knows who he is. Finally, they know who he is. And the Jews, according to Zechariah 12.10, they will look at him whom they have pierced. And they'll go, where did this come from? How did this happen? And he's going to say, it was you, buds. And they're going to know who Jesus is as well. Revelation 1.8, he says it himself, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. Which refutes any religion on the planet that says that he is not God. He is stating it right there. I am he. And if you read around it, unfortunately, if we were to try and read everything, we wouldn't get through five pages of this. So you're going to have to do your own digging. But he states who he is. I am God. There is no other. Guess what? Everybody figures it out that day. The world, the Jew, and we already knew. The beginning chapters are statement letters to the seven churches of Asia. Okay, verse, uh, chapters 1 through 3, he talks to the churches in Asia. And he says, um, he addresses them. They're located in, today in modern-day Turkey and Greece. Okay, but they were, it was the churches of Asia Minor at the time. 
and they were literal churches. In fact, some of you have probably been to those ancient sites and visited those places. It is really something to go there. It really is pretty cool. Um, but they are, you know, some people will argue that, uh, well, you know, they were literal churches, and, and so we have to look at those things as, you know, having, because it was literal, we don't uh, pay attention to the importance of that. Today, we don't think it's important anymore. But again, in light of the fact that uh, churches today are still having the same kinds of problems as the churches were in the, in the first century, uh, there's valid um, points to be paying attention to there. We're not perfect yet, are we? So in verses 12 to 16 of chapter 1, he says um, John sees Jesus as well from a totally different perspective from where, what he has seen him previously. Jesus is standing amongst those seven churches, which are called the, what's the term that often gets used in the Revelation? The candles or the lampstands. And they're called torches as well. So wherever you see that, that is talking about the church. Okay? Not the Jew, the church. And you will see that when you read Revelation 1.20. It says very specifically, Now as he... No, as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. That is a big clue as to how this plays out. You need to know you're a lampstand. So in chapter 1, you're a lampstand in the earth when John gets this revelation And then shortly thereafter, you discover that you're not there anymore. So the letters are recorded. John is, you know, Jesus is typing, you know, dictating the letters to John. He says, look, you guys, you've lost your first love. Look, you're tolerating this kind of sin. Look, this is happening over here. This is happening over here. This stuff is affecting you. It's not okay. So Jesus is giving a rebuke to the churches. He's giving them correction. And then if you read through, you'll see there's also encouragement there. And we need that today. You know, singing kumbaya is great. But if I'm sleeping with somebody else who's not my husband at the same time, I need some correction. And that's how it was for those seven churches. And we can see and apply the same kind of correction and encouragement Today, because the modern day church is still doing stupid stuff. So, then those letters get recorded, and after that, we get to Revelation 4, verse 1. John's next site is the throne room of God. How many of you got a chance to read through the whole book of Revelation before this, or at least the first four or five chapters? Okay, so if you look blank in my eyes, I know why, and you've got time, you can catch up. Okay, so John's next site is the throne room. And it is an incredibly, even for us in 2019, to get our heads around what that's going to be like, is, it's awe-inspiring. It is awesome, truly. And I think it's probably pretty scary. It must have been amazingly uh, unnerving for John. I can't imagine. Can you see yourself in a throne room where there's these bizarre 
looking creatures flying around and and with voices and and there's thunder and there's lightning and can you see yourself there like i i don't know that i'd be standing it's it's an awesome sight so this happens of course he sees somebody sitting on the throne and that that uh, description is stunning to get your head around too and then he sees these 24 other thrones with 24 other people on them and they're people they're not things they're people okay and then he says that Jesus is there and these seven torches of fire are there what did we say the torches were the church where are the torches in the throne room so chapter 1 Jesus is on the earth amongst those seven churches of Asia Minor letters to the churches happen chapter 4 all of a sudden Jesus well John is in the throne room and he sees someone on the throne who is incredible 24 other thrones with 24 other people called the elders and there's the seven torches in the throne room all honoring and glorifying and worshiping the God on the throne hmm remember that in Revelation 4 6 mm-hmm the, who are the 24 elders? Most people believe that the 24 elders come out of the church age. It's the first sign of anything like that, and there's plenty of verses that describe a time when there will be these senior leaders from the church age that help in heaven, that help in the millennial reign, and it's, there's no other explanation at this point, except that there are people that came out of the church age. I would say probably the, the 12 disciples would be 12 of those people, 12 of those people on the throne. Yeah. I don't think I get one. Um, in Revelation 4, 6, there is one other uh, thing there that says um, something interesting. Revelation 4, 6. And before the throne, there is, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. A sea of glass like crystal. In the throne room, where all of this is happening, where the seven churches are, there is a sea of glass like crystal. Who knows what sea, a sea, a body of water, in prophecy is usually interpreted as based on Old Testament um, check, if you will. Who knows what a sea is usually considered? People. People. And what's the special feature of this group of people? They are, they're seen as crystal. Crystal. What's crystal? Transparent, pure, without, without any blemish. Okay? So, We get the idea from this, to the best of John's ability to make sense of it for us, there's a group of people, a vast group of people, who are spotless. 
there as well. Think about that. So John 4, 1. John sees a door. He's commanded to come up and see the future. So once he's composed himself after experiencing the throne room, there's a scroll that gets introduced. The future begins to unroll. Okay. So already by chapter 4, John's getting a brand new view of Jesus. He's never had this view of Jesus before. Up until then, he has known Jesus as loving, as a kind teacher, compassionate, forgiving, long-suffering. He's known him as one who kept his mouth shut. You know, for the most part, he just was give, give, give. John knew Jesus on the earth as Savior. But now he's getting a revelation of him as Lord God. On the earth, John knew him as the Lamb of God. Now he's getting the vision of him as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. This is new. This is new for John. So the churches were in Asia Minor in chapter 1. Now by chapter 4, they're in the throne room. From what is to what he saw and what has yet to take place, that's what's going on here. The church is never mentioned again in the book of Revelation until chapter 19. Go ahead. Do you want to preach? You're on, you're on the radar. Yes. And that's one of the things we're going to talk about is why there's division in understanding about when the church leaves the earth. That's important. You're not... Don't be sorry. I'm calling you up next week. (laughs) So really, he says chapter 16. So I'm going to turn there to make sure I'm not missing something. Chapter 16 talks about the bull judgments. Chapter 17. So I'm going to just correct you a little bit there, brother. It is chapter 19. So in chap- from chapter 4, when now we see the church in the throne room of God, it's chapter 19 when the church finally gets mentioned again. From 4 to 19, and let me just say, that's all the yucky stuff. The church is not mentioned at all. That is important when you're trying to figure out what your doctrine of the rapture is going to be. So, let's restate. There's three groups. There's the Gentile world, there's the Jew, and then there is the church, the called out ones. All scripture has to be discerned based on who its audience is. We can learn and gain from what it's saying to any group of people, okay? But it's not necessarily written for us or to us in the sense of it is directly in correlation with what our future might be, especially when it comes to prophecy. So let's talk about us first. What is going to happen to us? Most of us have heard some ideas. We're going to go at the beginning. We're going to go in the middle. We're going to go in the end. We're not going anywhere. All of those things have been told to the church. And I want to say... And again, I think part of the reason why um, I think this is so important is because I've watched what's happened to the church in recent, you know, last 20 or better years 
by not having um, what I would say is the correct understanding. There's fruit for whatever you believe. So if you believe that we're in the millennium now, how, how, how much do you really work at reaching the lost? We're in the millennium already, which makes absolutely no sense because there is no, no, uh, um, there's no temple in, in uh, Jerusalem. God did not set up his office there. Okay, I don't have a glorified body yet. I don't know about you. Mine didn't get glorified somehow. Okay, To think that we're in the millennium now is... <laughs> you're not reading your Bible. You're just not reading it. To think that... Okay, well, i got to stay on this. Otherwise, I'm going to end up all over the place. So us first. What is the rapture? Catching away of the church. The rapture is a term we use in English... That means catching away. Let's all turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, one of the most quoted passages relating to explaining the, cha- uh, the rapture. Uh, chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians, starting at verse 13. This is Paul, and I'll just give you the background here real quick. Paul went, went and set up church in a place called Thessaloniki, uh, on one of his missionary journeys. I think it was the second, but I don't remember for sure. And during that time, he got them all set up, got them saved, got them filled with the Holy Spirit, gave them the, you know, the most important doctrines. They're not under the law. They're Gentiles. So they're learning about um, uh, being spirit-filled. They're learning about communion. He's given them the real foundational stuff. And along with that, okay, which refutes the argument that this does not matter, Paul has taught them about the rapture of the church. Paul taught them, right along with communion, right along with how to heal the sick, raise the dead, and cast out the demons, he taught them the rapture of the church. It is a foundational doctrine of the church. Years pass, and somehow we get all messed up. But Paul said at the very beginning, this is what I taught you. And we should be able to look at that and go, okay, this mattered. This mattered. So the idea now that the rapture, what's going to happen in the next thousand years, what's going to happen tomorrow, the idea that that doesn't matter, you just keep putting one foot in front of the other, that is not what God's heart is. His heart is that you know and are prepared and walk in the truths of the idea that you could leave tomorrow. It matters to God. So Paul has been to Thessalonica. He has dealt with them, got them all started and rolling along. And somebody shows up and says, Oh, don't you know? The rapture's already happened. You missed it. And it's messed up this church. It's really rocked them. And so then he has to write them another letter. And he says, Oh, you people. You guys, how quickly you got off track. So, in this little bit of this letter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, he says to them, But we would not have you ignorant, brothers, concerning those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus... God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. 
For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. To be caught up is the word that we use in English to mean rapture. But in, in the Greek, uh, most of us have been taught this already. What's, what's the word in Greek? In, harpazo. Harpazo. And it means to snatch with force from harm. So you got a kid that's running out in the street, and they're just about ready to get run over, and you grab that kid and you yank them back, that's harpazo. Snatching them out of the way before harm comes to them. And there's force involved in getting them out of that. Uh, in Latin, the word is rapturo, which is where we get that word rapture from. So harpazo is the Greek Bible. When it was translated to Latin, it became rapturo, and then we get our word rapture in English. It was a very important doctrine uh, to, the, to the New Testament church. The early church, everybody knew the rapture. Everybody knew communion. Everyone knew you laid hands on the sick and they recovered. Everyone knew the name of Jesus cast out the devil. Everyone knew that. And it's distinct from the second coming. Okay? The second coming of Christ, also called the second advent, it's not the same. This is not the same. We cannot mix these two things up. So, I don't really think I need to write this down, but you need to know this. Okay? And you need to discern the difference. In the rapture, Christ comes in the air. He comes in the air. In the second advent of Christ, he comes to the earth. So in the rapture, his feet do not touch the ground. We are caught up to meet him in the air. In the advent, he puts his feet on planet earth. In the rapture, Christ comes for the church. In the advent, advent he comes to, or sorry, with the church. That's another big one. This is probably not even legible, is it? So in the rapture, he comes for the church. Okay. In the second advent, we are with him. Uh, one of my favorite teachers about this is uh, Amir Sarfati. And he always says, um, you know, in, this, in the second advent, you don't want to see his face. Does that make sense? Do you understand? Because we're coming back with him. He's leading the charge. We're going to see the back of his head. Okay? You want to see the back of his head at the second coming. You do not want to be seeing him face on. Okay? So in the rapture, he comes for the church. In the second advent, he comes with the church. We come with him. I hope you know that. In the rapture, it's called a blessing. It's called a blessing. In his second advent, it's judgment. There is no blessing in the judgment. In the rapture, 
Only those who are born of the Spirit are affected. If you are not in a born-again relationship with Jesus Christ, you will not be raptured. You must be born again. In the second advent, believer and unbeliever, they are affected. So in the rapture, we're affected as the born-again body of Christ. In the advent, it's the others. It's the unsaved now who are affected. In the rapture, it's invisible. It's invisible. Only those who are born of the Spirit are going to see him come in the clouds. In the advent, everyone sees him on that day. Every eye will see him. Every knee will bow on earth and under the earth. Every tongue will confess. He is Lord. In the rapture, it's announced by one archangel. In the advent, the second coming, his, his arrival on the earth is announced by myriads of angels. In the rapture, we get our resurrected bodies. We get the glorified bodies that don't get tired, that don't have aches, that can stay up all night. In the advent, there are no resurrected bodies. In the rapture, he rescues the church. He rescues us. In his second advent, he rescues Israel from Satan's wrath. Extremely different things are going on here. And if you don't know the word, you don't know how to discern who your teacher is, who's talking to you about this, that, or the other thing. There's, I am stunned at how many people are on even like 9.30 the light preaching and teaching who are teaching stuff that cannot help but evoke fear and anxiety in the body of Christ. And it's because they're mixing this stuff up. They don't know who is who's being talked to in these passages of Scripture. You must distinguish the difference between the rapture and the second coming. They are two distinctly different events. And if you mix them up, you're not going to know what to believe, and it's going to cause you fear. The rapture involves the catching up of every living believer in the air. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 again says, Then we who are alive, who are left, shall be caught up into the clouds. Okay? The dead ones are already coming up. Okay? This is something else, too, to, to pay attention to. We're not talking about every dead one. We're only talking about the church-age dead ones. This two year, this two thousand years of grace period, it's the people that died over here that are getting caught up with you and me. We're not talking about Old Testament saints. We're talking about the dead in Christ. Again, understand how special you are. There's only two thousand years worth of people that get to be called the church. So this, you know, John, who was 150 years old, that got filled with the Spirit at Pentecost and died the next day, him and little baby Aria, or little baby whoever, okay, they're the ones that were dead and get caught up in the air with those who remain, and whoosh, off we go. So, catching away of every living believer in the air. Trumpet is audible to the church-age saint. 
the trumpet is audible to us. Not everyone is going to hear that trumpet. And here's an evidence of that, or an example of what that might look like in the, uh, at, at the end of the age, the church age. Do you remember when um, Jesus, there's two incidences, but I'm trying to, I don't want to mix them up. When Jesus was baptized, and he came up, and then it says that this, you know, something like a dove came and descended on him, and some heard an audible voice from heaven, and some only heard thunder. Do you remember that in the scripture? Look it up if you need to. I think that's kind of what is going to happen here. For those of us who are born again, we're going to hear the trumpet. But the rest of the earth might only hear thunder. They might not hear anything. Hard to know. But you and I, we will hear the trumpet of that archangel one call us. And Jesus is going to be waiting for us in the air. Trumpet, the trumpet is audible. The force, there's force involved. The concept of the rapture is in the Bible just like Trinity is in the Bible, just like other concepts are in the Bible. So anyone who argues with you that the rapture is not in the Bible, just say, well, neither is the Trinity, but you believe in that, don't you? And give them a boot in the butt. Um, the, there's a... Oh, sorry. Yes, there is a little smidgen of a reference in the, in the, um, in the Gospels. There's not much, and I'll end up repeating myself here, but there's not much evidence of the, of the church or the rapture in the gospel. Jesus didn't teach this stuff. Why didn't he teach this stuff? It didn't exist yet. It wasn't his job to teach it. The, guess who got the job primarily? Paul. Paul was the one who ended up being the one who was going to reveal church-age truth. There's a little bit of a hint in John 14, and there's one other place where Jesus said something. I'll look it up again. Uh, But apart from that, church-age truth didn't really start to be revealed until Pentecost. And then when when, uh, Paul got knocked off his, you know, (laughs) that's when things started to really happen, and we got to, to know these things. That's why Jesus said, you know, I have to go. I'm going and I'm going to send this special force to help you because there's so much more that you need to know, but you can't handle it now. You're not equipped for it now, but you're going to get it eventually. And that's where the epistles come in. Most of the New Testament is, is the letters from Paul and the other apostles explaining what Jesus um, left in the hands of those guys via the Holy Spirit to teach us. People also mix up the fact that Jesus was not speaking to people um, from a redeemed perspective. They weren't redeemed yet. The church wasn't born. We weren't redeemed until after the cross. So much of what Jesus speaks about is still connected with the law. There's good stuff there, but it's not church age revelation yet. Okay, so... Uh, there's a reunion, the dead in Christ, they da da la, all that kind of stuff. Uh, rapture is an exemption from death for those in that moment. Again, getting back to who we are and the privilege of being here at this time. We are the exception. 
We are an absolute exception. You can look uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, but I want us to turn to Romans eleven twenty five, and just see this. Well, starting at, um, okay, Paul is writing and he's talking about recognizing yourself in light of Israel and the fact that Israel is in a temporary state of rejection from God for our sake, okay? And he says uh, in verse 25, he's, it's kind of like a don't you get high on yourself here, but he says, lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brethren. A hardening has come upon part of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come, etc. The full uh, measure, the full, what is the number, of the Gentiles come in. Okay. Um, This is different from Revelation 9, where it talks about the tribulation saints. We are this group. We're the full number of Gentiles. We're waiting for that last person, for God to say, okay, that's it. Not that God's saying that's it and he's just cutting off, but he knows the heart of man. He knows nobody else is going to receive him. And he says, okay, that's it. It's done. Now it's time. Go get him. Go get your bride. So it's different from Revelation 9. There are people that will come into, uh, into right relationship with God during the tribulation, but they are not church-age saints. We've mixed that up, too. And you have to define the difference. There's a difference. We're the church-age saints. Then comes this, whenever it starts, this seven-year time. That's awful. People do get saved out of that. Nowhere in the scripture are they called the church. They are always called the tribulation saints. Always, always. So you need to make that def- def- uh, distinction as well. Because when you start reading Revelation, and you start reading about what happens to those people, many of you have been taught that that's you. It's not you. You need to know that, or you're going to be fodder for the devil to evoke fear in your life. So, there have been other raptures. Enoch. Elijah. Who else? Jesus. He was raptured. Except he, he had a slow-mo rapture. <laughs> I'm coming back. Okay, whereas for us, it's like immediate. Who else, was, who else was raptured and didn't leave the earth completely? Philip. Philip with the eunuch. Um, Paul was raptured. Right? He got moved around. John was even raptured, according to this. But he, you know, came back. Enoch. Okay, he always said Enoch. Okay, that's all. Uh, And in the future, we know that the two witnesses in Revelation are raptured. And we know the 144,000 are raptured. We know that as well. Uh, the, The word in the scripture that often is used to define things we don't know uh, is mystery. And we call, you see that uh, the mystery of the rapture, the mystery of the church, those are, are terms that get used. But mystery in, in the original language didn't mean something we don't know. It meant a new truth, something that has, had yet to be revealed. So we in our, our uh, 
Europe's understanding of that kind of uh, a definition, we think that it means that it's something we can't understand. But that is not what mystery meant to those New Testament saints. Mystery meant it's a new church, a, a new truth, something that ha- is just now we're getting the, the download for. Okay? And the church was a mystery. The church was a mystery in terms of it, it was a new man. It was a brand new being that had never existed on the planet before. The revelation of it only came after Acts chapter 2. So formerly hidden in past ages, but now disclosed. Ephesians 3, 3 to 9, just to prove it to you. Paul says it like this. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit... That is, how the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Exhibit A, Solid Rock, March 31, 2019. You are a mystery. That's what this is saying. The church was a mystery until the revelation came. The revelation through Paul the apostles by the help of the Holy Spirit. So when it talks about the you know uh, the mystery of how all of this is going to come down, it's not that you never know what God's going to do. It's that it was something they had no no former experience with. That's what that's about. We aren't in the Gospels except for um, a veiled reference in Matthew 16. That's the other one I was thinking of. Matthew 16. Verse 18. Jesus and Peter and the others are talking. And Jesus says to Peter, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. That is the first time that word gets used. The first time. That's the, and that's where he stops. He doesn't give him any more information than that. He's got nothing else to go on. It's like, okay, boss, we'll see whatever that means. Do I open up on Sunday morning? Like, he doesn't know. But that's the only other reference that you see of Jesus talking about what is yet to come in this born-again Acts chapter 2 group of people. Um, It became the, the job of Paul, especially to reveal the church, and, you know, a lot of scholars think that the vast majority of that revelation came to him when he was in jail. All those years in jail, that's when they, they think that is probably when he got all this revelation. Not that I'm really up for that, but thank you, Paul. And the church began at Pentecost. It ends at the rapture. It's a miracle on both ends inexplainable miracle move of God on both ends and I think I have to stop there because it's already quarter to one so I'm going to really have to stay on task here and not not to not just have conversations yes sir Uh, the literal atmosphere it's the literal atmosphere 
Nope, it's that scripture, and again, because people, you know, scientific minds want to know, we're like that. We want, we want all those kinds of details. But the Bible does say that we are transformed immediately. That, that supernatural change in our physical being is happening instantly. Uh, atomos is the word in, in uh, Greek, atomos, relating to the splitting of the atom. It's going to happen so fast that it cannot be measured in any other way. So fast. So I have no concern that I'm going to run out of air on my way up. The atmosphere will never be too thin for you or me. But it is a physical atmosphere that they are, that is, it's, it's saying what it means and it's meaning what it's saying. Yep. Yeah, I will let, yeah, have any questions on what I've discussed so far because I'm hoping that I'm going to answer a pile of questions in the coming weeks. Any other questions? There's no question too dumb, by the way. David, right? What happens to the Old Testament saints? Hmm? That is not a simple answer because there is um, referencing to Abraham and others uh, being in heaven, okay, or coming back like Elijah coming back to the Mount of Transfiguration. But there is scripture in the, at the end of Revelation uh, that talks about the... the the saints that go back to the Old Testament. Okay, this is the resurrection time that uh, the catching away in the rapture is. But Old Testament saints, there is, uh, there's evidence that would support that they're in heaven. But there's also evidence that makes you wonder if they're, um, the, the, the term the bosom of Abraham gets used. Okay, um, I, my personal opinion from what I have studied, cause, and I don't have it all laid out here, is I, I do believe that there is a, that they're with him. When it talks about in, at the very end that um, the, the, de- the earth will give up its dead, the sea will give up its dead, etc., and then they are all at this white throne judgment, that I think is talking about the unjustified dead. The unjustified dead. Meaning, well, Nero, uh, Alexander the Great, you know, name every despot and bad guy you can think of that is, is pre, well, no, yeah, Nero was before. Was Nero before? No, Nero was after. Uh, but anyway, when it's talking about all those people coming back to life for the white throne judgment, uh, it's all the bad guys there. I'll have to look a little bit more for you so I make more sense. It's such a big subject, guys. That's why it takes years and years of study and and measuring back and forth and knowing the word because it's like it's like if you had to take all grade all the 12 grades that you had in school and then at the last day write an exam of everything you learned. How do you recall it? How do you how does it stay straight in your head? It's so big. It's so big, and it's so interconnected. But the more you're in the word, the more it makes sense. And even if you don't have the finer details, which is why I have to look it up for you, David, uh, you remember the overarching. You remember the most important concepts. And really, prophecy, end-time eschatology, is meant to bring peace to you. What does it say at the end of that? Comfort yourself with these words. You're supposed to be comforted in knowing what's coming. Yeah, there's, in this world you will have trouble. But be of good cheer, for I've overcome the world. 
that's a lot different than being sawn and quartered and flayed on a stove. Right? Okay, let's close. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you that um, your word is so incredibly awesome. It is so incredibly accurate. It's the only supernatural word on the planet and into eternity that has the ability to impact us incredibly, powerfully, completely. And so I pray that as we study this, this information, I know for some of us this is like heads are spinning because we don't know the word very well. But for others, Lord God, there is such a, um, such a peace that comes. It's like that, that song, I love to tell the story to those who know it best. When we have walked with you, when we know the redeeming power that has come through your blood, we just get more and more excited the more time we spend uh, reflecting on that. So I pray, Father, that um, in the coming weeks you will give us the time to read. You'll help us to make it a priority and uh, that we will be uh, students of your word this week ready to learn, ready to comprehend, ready to connect the dots ready to do away with wrong doctrine, ready to do away with thinking and and beliefs that uh, cause us fear, and just to really be comforted by your words in the way that they were meant to for all of us. So we thank you for this time, and we love you, and we're so grateful to be your kids. We're so grateful to be church-age saints. The Lord bless you today and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you, fill you with his peace. We say yes and amen. Amen. Thank you, folks.